the amount of people that engage with games and spend money in games and their identities in games, I think this is a really critical thing. It's about your digital identity, right? And so many games now are more than just a, oh, come and play as this character and get through. It's about connecting. They're social. It's really about finding a part of yourself that you didn't realize you had in your physical world. People build real-time social communities in games and they want to express themselves. And that's going to just become more and more predominant and you need to dress those people <laughs> they all need fashion they want to go beyond that and if anything they, they want to have do. options exactly right. they want to have options mm -hmm. and I think especially now like it's all about being able to express yourself so how you express yourself digitally is going to be huge but I think that's where digital fashion is the missing piece with that Welcome to Up Next in Tech, a podcast exploring the intersection of emerging tech, responsible innovation, and the way we live, play, and interact through conversations with the brilliant people that are in the trenches, building these nascent industries, and really grappling with the endless possibilities and uncertainties that come with them. I'm your host, Ariba Jahan, and in this episode, I chat with Nirmala Shom, who is the head of marketing and growth at The Fabricant, a digital fashion house that's really focused on building a new fashion industry where everybody can participate and profit. With over 15 years of experience across digital agencies, e-commerce, and immersive startups, Nirmala has really honed her expertise in being a digital producer, a community builder, and a storytelling marketer for cutting-edge technology. In this conversation, Nirmala shares her origin journey, how she started with studying digital arts in Australia to taking a big leap of faith and moving to New York to dive into the digital agency scene here and then eventually landing at the Fabricants Amsterdam headquarters. We discussed the role of digital fashion in gaming, augmented reality, and AI. We also talk about how do you balance a brand vision with community ownership if you truly want co-design and co-creation for the future, the use of provocative imagery to push diversity and inclusion. Nirmala also digs into the future of fashion labels and IPs, the difference in work cultures worldwide that she's had a chance to experience, the reality of explaining what she does and nascent industries while things are still being built and figured out, and her outlook on both the potential opportunities and risks of our increasingly virtual world. I will say I started this episode with a lot of curiosity for what is digital fashion and what is its role in sustainability, in, in tech, in the way that we express ourselves and culture and all of that. Nirmala broke all that down for me. So I really appreciate her for this. And I hope you get to learn a lot from her. So let's dive in. Hey, Nirmala, I'm so excited that we're finally doing this. Ever since we were on that panel together with Michelle and Jake about the metaverse, I was like, we have to get Nirmala on the podcast and to just talk about all things metaverse, digital fashion, and like all the things you're interested in. So thank you so much for making the time today. No, thank you. And same, I'm also excited. I agree. I think like we were meant to chat. So <laughs> it's yeah. great that it's happening. <laughs> I think a great place to start could be sharing your origin story. You've had such an interestingly rich career, dabbled in so many different roles and industries. I think we'd just love to hear that. Yeah, definitely. So I think my origin story, I guess I'll go back to when I first graduated, which was a long time ago now. But when I first graduated, I was in Australia. I just finished a media communication arts degree. And I was just trying to figure out, I was interested in marketing, interested always in digital. I'd just done a thesis in digital arts. I was really interested in the creative potential of digital technology. And that's at a time where digital technology or like what you were looking into was new, right? Not a lot of people were doing that. Yeah, it was definitely early days. I remember for one of my projects, I had to go into Second Life and interview people. I went to the American oh, Apparel wow. Store on Second Life. And I remember it being such a like crazy experience. And yeah, so new, like it was still really early days for all that type of thing. I was so fascinated by it, especially like the potential of interactive technology, interactive art. But obviously that was such a small space back then that I ended mm. up my first job, which I managed to get through just cold emailing with ridiculous subject lines. I have what it takes and things like that <laughs> to get my first interview. 
at Clemenger BBDO, which was actually one of Australia's top advertising agencies and somehow got passed along a chain to their digital media team. And my first job was actually a digital analyst doing reporting for like direct marketing campaigns. So like banner ads, email campaigns, Google and media. And yeah, started off just doing massive Excel spreadsheets, reports on conversion or click-through rates, all that stuff. So that was like how I was, how I found my way into it. And then got deeper into that world, but more into media buying. So actually working with media companies and then got into account management. And then at that time, I felt like I was moving further away from what I loved, which was actually like working on the digital, the creation of the digital content itself. You were analyzing it, not necessarily Yeah, exactly. Analyzing it it or buying media for it, but not involved in the creative part. And what I was really interested in was the creative, the creation of it and how it was created. So I actually then moved into project management or being a producer. And that was, I think, where I really fell in love with being actually able to, like, how do you produce work? And at that time, obviously, it was like banner ads or Facebook social apps or email. So it wasn't anything too crazy. But I still really enjoyed that, just having a hands-on, being hands-on with the team and actually make building something. And I, and I think that was always something that I loved to do. I then was able to, during my time, actually work on things like apps and websites and e-commerce sites. And, and so I did get more experience. And then and eventually got the bug, the itch to leave Australia and go overseas, managed to get a job through the help of some friends in New York at a digital agency, which was like a real, a big leap for me, a leap of faith. Quit my job. Yeah. Went over there and ended up staying in New York for five years. And I think when I was in New York, I started off as a, at a digital agency, really working on delivering like massive e-com platforms, loyalty programs, CMSs, all that's like super technical stuff, applications. So I had a lot of experience doing big, these big kind of builds. But again, I had that feeling of it was quite mechanical, losing a bit of that creativity. We're really rolling out these large scale platforms. So I moved to a very like boutique product design studio. This also who are actually have now been bought by Instrument, which is another big product agency in, in the US. And that was, I think, one of the best jobs I had where I was working still in project management but what this also did was they would do really high like conceptual like product design for product innovation teams at google at spotify at nike at apple xbox like we got to work on the xbox interface design prototype it did some amazing stuff with the google creative lab team and that was really where i got exposed to like all this really new emerging tech like stuff where Mm. the teams there were prototyping they had this technology, but they didn't know how to bring it to a consumer level or how to present it to consumers. So a lot of it was like machine learning tools, trying to put them into like playful interfaces or playful experiences that people could actually interact with and get something out of just to really test the waters. So really then you had the analyst background too. And then you were able to connect those dots of like, how do you take something so new and technical and then reach the masses or like, how do you scale that and, and market that and communicate? Well, I think, you know, like at this point, a lot of what we did actually never saw the light of day. A lot of it was really like early stage. There were definitely a few things that did get out. Like we worked on some Google AI music projects that actually made it into the live environment. But at this stage, it was really like about just like trying to, yeah, like trying to create engagement. So yeah, definitely connecting it to engagement. And product designers, it really is, I think like the best product design is often quite playful and actually crosses into entertainment. Yes, it has to be functional, but what actually really gets you and what I think humans really respond to is that sense of play and engagement. And so it was interesting because we really pushed that boundary of not just doing something, okay, we have a goal, we need to get people to use something, but how do we bring that high quality like level of play and engagement to go a bit above and beyond but so that was a really interesting experience and then after my time in New York I was like okay time to move on to the next thing move back to Australia for a couple of years was freelancing doing various random things <laughs> in that time but then got that itch again to move overseas and this time to Europe which I'd, I'd been to a few times on vacation and was really fascinated too by like what would it be like to work and live in Europe like obviously very different to Australia and America. So managed again through a friend to get a job with The Fabricant, where I am now, a digital fashion house, which at the time when I first came across them, I was like, I really have no, I really don't understand this world at all. But I was like, look, I want to move. They're looking for 
but producer, let me see what I can do. I had a great first conversation with one of the founders, Kerry, and yeah, was just like a little bit hooked with this. Again, it was like the super new emerging tech. They have a really compelling vision where they knew that digital fashion was coming. They knew that the world would, like it wasn't there yet, but it was coming the world would have to embrace it with the way things are going in the fashion industry. They were just like super early. And so they hooked me with that. And I was working with them and we did some incredible projects. They were working with some amazing clients at the time. I actually was lucky enough to work on a project for Off-White with Virgil Abloh directly, which is really amazing. And some other incredible clients that they had during the pandemic, because it was like really the time when brands were like, okay, we need to find digital solutions because our physical production is not as was at a standstill. So that was like a really incredible time to be working at the fabricant, moved over and, and yeah, have been here since 2020. Had my first child here as well. So that was also a fun experience, challenging and, and fun. pandemic baby too, right? Yeah, pandemic baby, exactly. My journey at the fabricant started actually before the fabricant officially launched their platform, which was like the web three enabled digital fashion co creation and minting platform with a marketplace wearability and I helped them at first kind of launch that platform so I was working more on the product side and then as we were growing the product out after we'd done a couple of launches I was really fascinated with the growing kind of discipline around web3 communities and Mm. how they were so powerful at that early stage everyone was talking about like how do you harness this power how do you like work with communities you're really building a product that's so deeply connected to them and so I really yeah again was like, okay, how do I get deeper into this community world? Because the way I saw it was like focusing on the product. It was still really interesting to me and I still love working on product and product design, but you're really focused on delivering features and values to to service this product, right? Your success Mm -hmm. is really about the product success. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to broaden my focus to think about the community success because what the a growing community, essentially there could be many products and services that come from a growing community that could be supported by a growing community. As we see with many other projects, it starts with one product, but then they have to spin up new ones or as the community changes, as it grows, there are different needs. So I, I was like, how do I go beyond just product and think about building the community at a larger scale? So doing activations and events and also so learning and feedback loops and all that interesting stuff. Yeah, I was head of community, helped build the community team, helped build up our Discord, do events, have run many events, IRL, as well as on online events. And yeah, have, have been working community, really love that. And re- most recently, a kind of transitioning to this marketing and growth role, mm-hmm. which kind of encompasses community within it. But then yeah. also has a focus on, yeah, marketing and acquisition. And that's like you know? the so fabric community. brand marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's really about the storytelling from the fabricant, from our partners, from our collaborators, how we do that across all the different platforms. What's our strategy when we go to market? How do we promote things? How do we acquire new people? How do we bring them to, yeah. the, to the right places? And then on the community side, it's really, okay, how do we keep them? How do we retain them? How do we make sure that we're creating a space they want to return to? Because definitely, especially in the web three space the community is such a powerful thing to have like yeah. the azuki drop was a recent telling example of that where they were able to sell out their collection <laughs> primarily through their existing holder base and i think that's as much as many people obviously there's criticism about the drop and the art and things like that but the fact that they were able to do that in this current market at still a fairly decent high eth price is yeah. pre- pretty amazing that their community came back and, and supported them through that so you really see like the power of community come through in web three i think more than the, the way you see it through come through for celebrities and fandom i think that's the comparable thing i'd love to go back to the beginning a thread i keep hearing is you worked in australia new york yep. and then europe by working across so many different markets and work culture what were some key differences that really rise to the top when you think about those three different regions Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think, and also working in the industries I worked in, Mm -hmm, there was mm -hmm. definitely, it was always like high pressure, tight deadline environments, like working at ad agencies, agencies in general. The way that pressure is handled is very different. Like I'd say, I'd actually say Australia is quite comparable to US work culture in the sense that people work really hard in Australia. 
there is like a real emphasis on this. I think people pride themselves on being like this a hardworking individual. I would say though, definitely in the US, I felt like there was more of a competition like within the workspace because maybe that is just a reality of like scarce jobs and things scarce like that. Scarce growth. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And having to really prove yourself, especially in a city like New York, right, where it is such a competitive environment. So I definitely felt that a little bit more, but I, I felt like Australia and US are very comparable in terms of you really bring your A game and you're a hard worker and you really pride yourself on that. Moving to Europe, it's, I would say definitely people still work hard, but it's not as intense for sure. <laughs> like people really okay. take their holidays and their break time very seriously. And I think generally that culture is changing globally like burnout is a real thing now and it has real consequences not just for companies if they have employees on burnout it's extremely it's a huge issue for them so I do feel like globally that general culture is changing but I'd say in Europe it is definitely people respect that a lot more I would also say and what's really interesting is how decisions are made in oh. different culturally even from country to country it's really unique I think how feedback is given the Dutch are known to be very direct so if you're in Netherlands where I am feedback is given pretty directly like in day-to-day -day life and to, from clients to feedback, which actually is really great. It means you cut through all the stuff and then it's okay. What do we need to change? What do we need to do? Let's move forward. So I do actually really appreciate that. It can be a little bit jarring at first. And I think especially coming from an American work culture where actually it's mm -hmm. not very direct. There's the sandwich there method. There's how do I warm up to, to getting there? Yeah. There's definitely a lot of strategies people put into place to be able to give feedback. And even then, sometimes it's not the full yeah. yeah, like the amount of times we'd be like working on something and then the last round comes in and the clients are just like, we don't, we can't do this. We don't like it. And it's like, how did we get this far on the process? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and right. I think it's a real cultural thing. So I think yeah. that's one thing that's great about Netherlands, but obviously that's, it's very different for each country. So working with countries like in the UK or in Sweden and Italy, like all very different. But I love that actually. That's why the reason I wanted to travel is yeah. like that you get to experience that and really see it and, and see see that it can be done a billion different ways and not one way is necessarily right or wrong. Some might be more efficient than others, but there's also something nuanced about, okay, this is how people get it done here in their own way. So it's cool to be able to witness that. Yeah. And then, like you said, in the beginning, it might be jarring and then you have to adopt those methods. And then if you move again, then you have to unlearn and unlearn the new culture way of working and unspoken and spoken norms, right? Yeah, exactly. And then there's so many unspoken norms, you realize, yeah. which, and, and it is also interesting how you, your self shift in that process as well. Like you do definitely have to assimilate a little bit wherever you go, but then there's also ways that you can still preserve yourself and where, how you came up and how you did things. And it is nice. I think sometimes, especially if you were, you grew up somewhere and you were really like always felt like, yes, this is how we all do things. Mm -hmm. When you come out of that context to really witness like, oh, okay, this is really unique actually this, like this feels place. unique to me here because right. it's a very something culturally from where I grew up so what, yeah, it's, what it's, has been the weirdest unspoken norm that you picked up on and you're like this is a thing here I just don't understand and I think one thing that I've picked up on that actually is not so much that it's a norm it's more something that I just wish I had done earlier okay. is actually just the being really direct thing mm. I think like a lot of my obviously your early career too when you first start working you're really trying to be like please everyone make sure everyone's happy with what you're doing and obviously this comes with as you get older too you just have less time to do that and you need to focus on what is important but I think actually being really direct whether it's like in the way you do emails and obviously direct in the sense like just very clear and very to the point if you don't like something it's actually okay to say yeah. that you just have to explain why or if you don't understand something it's okay do that too I think that's definitely something I've felt a lot more here and I think maybe now when I communicate with people that maybe in the US or Australia it can come up as a little bit as more direct but I actually think it's just something that I wish I had done more of even when I was younger even though maybe at the time I felt a bit like oh I can't behave like this because I'm like a junior or 
so yeah, and you're a woman and you're brown yeah of course right? so <laughs> i think those things play a huge role because mm-hmm. when you're even using the word direct i'm feeling like oh like the word mean comes to my mind immediately yes, when i yeah. hear the word direct and that's because we've been socialized right we've been taught from a young age that women especially if you're brown or asian you can't be direct because it's mean or like when we see directness personified or emulated by men is usually given in a very mean and cutthroat way. So I feel like there's a failure of of the way it's been associated where men are, like we've seen it, men are bosses Hmm. and they are direct. Women are bossy when they do the same things, same behaviors, and they're mean and cruel if they do the same things, right? Like a man and a woman can literally say the same mean phrase and the woman is the one that's going to get categorized as mean and bitchy and the man's gonna be like oh that's just how he is and a lot of hardworking or like successful men have to be that way they're not all normal like it's normalized yeah and so I think what you're also sharing though is that is a very American perception of directness of feedback of behavior versus what I'm hearing is what you've been seeing hey directness can be provided without being mean it's about clarity and clear communication so that we can all get to the same place that we're all trying to get to. And I think that is also what I'm picking up on in, in the way that you're describing it. Yeah, definitely. And that's it. I think it's also just honesty because also I think people maybe are scared to voice their true opinion because maybe it's maybe I don't get it and so right if I criticize it is it me showing that or question it am I like revealing a little vulnerability or something and so often it's even just being able to ask the question like why would we do it that way or why is this the solution sometimes it's hard to even ask that but I think just seeing other people first ask it to me or give that feedback to me at first you're like okay actually yeah it's a good point and we do need to explain it and also being it's really important to validate that stuff obviously Mm -hmm. before you go to market before you bring anything out into the world so I think it's also just like the honesty which I would argue is also maybe that the level of honesty is maybe is higher in in, at least in our team I feel like we're a startup we're a small company we have a great founder-led culture and they're very direct and down to earth and I think will ask questions and really encourage us to ask questions and challenge and and I really appreciate that actually and I think it makes it so much easier to then just be like okay actually yeah I don't understand this or I don't think this is the best way to do it and not feel like you're causing like some kind of a drama that other people are going to be like, I can't believe they say it's just, oh yeah, cool. That's just part of the day. And then we move on and we solve it. That's definitely something I've picked up. That's really great. What's the size of Fabricant? When I first started, I think, yeah, it was 10 of us. So it was super small. And now there's 20 of us, which actually is, I really like that as a size actually, but we work with people all over the world. And that's also something that's really amazing as that's come, I think, through the pandemic, remote work. So yeah. I feel like this could be a perfect time to maybe tell us a little bit more about the Fabricant. I know when you look up the Fabricant, it's known as a digital fashion house, leading fashion industry towards a new sector of digital only clothing. What does that mean? What do you all do? And when you say product, like what is the product? That's the line I think that we've used for a long mm. time. Digital is it evolving? Fashion house. It's definitely evolving. Mm. I think digital fashion house, I guess like the original vision was like a label. The way that a fashion house, a label is set up to produce physical clothing. Mm-hmm. The fabricant were really like, how do we set ourselves up to produce digital clothing and show the world that there is an industry for digital only clothing? And that's been their mission since day one, since they launched in 2018 where it was just Carrie and Amber, two of the founders, Amber being a fashion student who just managed to fight her way through fashion school and actually get her portfolio digital only. So to Mm. not produce physical collection, which at the time they were like, she almost didn't get past, (laughs) but she fought for it because she believed in it. And she also saw like a big issue was just the waste of producing a collection, the cost, the waste, what's going to happen to it. And Kerry was actually, he's a 3D artist, was working in the ad industry and and content industry. And I think that both of them saw that, okay, there's powerful storytelling that can happen. Fashion is all about storytelling. It's all about creating beautiful visuals. And you can really do that all all digitally. And so they said about showing the world how you could do this through key visuals, through dresses. They created the first digital only dress that was auctioned 
on Ethereum for $10,000 at the time, roughly about $10,000, which was a huge milestone. It's pretty huge. In 2018, we obviously got all the headlines, everyone kind of talking about how ridiculous it was, what's happened, all the kind of <laughs> good and bad press that it created. That's been their mission since day one. And then, and since then, they brought on Adriana, another one of the co-founders who kind yeah. of heads up more the commercial side and started growing the company. But first, it was really just servicing physical fashion clients to help with their like digital transformation process. So showing them how to use 3D tools, how to create their collections. And it really accelerated during the pandemic, obviously, because they needed that support. But I think the Fabricant's goal was always, like you said, how do we show the world that actually, because all those clients were still producing physical clothing, they were just using digital internally. So it wasn't like it got beyond the buyers, like that was it. But we still wanted to show the world, well, how can digital fashion stand alone on itself? Can we back up for a second and talk about, okay, so when you have a brand who <laughs> creates physical clothing, physical fashion, what does it mean when they create a digital fashion item? How do I buy it? Where do I buy it? What do I use it for? What is that digital fashion? So I think the the primary way that brands currently use it today is mm -hmm. actually for their design process, prototyping okay. and sampling process. So right now, oh, back you know, 10 years ago, traditionally how it was done is to produce a collection, you physically obviously had to make it. So you would send, you'd send it to pattern makers and create the patterns and be several run-throughs of just the pattern itself where you'd be, you know, oh, testing yeah. out the garments. You'd probably be sending that around the world. The pattern makers might be in Asia. They produce in the factory. You're literally sampling, testing materials, testing buttons, testing colors, testing trims, like everything. That process itself of just getting to a designed collection, it's really expensive. It covers the whole world. Like it's a global kind of wow. supply chain process. And actually you end up wasting a lot, right? Because you're still in early stage of developing, mm -hmm. your prototyping, your testing, a lot of it goes to waste. So what companies can now do is they can do that process in 3D. And it's super powerful that you can bring, so say you're creating a jacket, you just prototype designer all in 3D on different body shapes. You can customize the body shapes. So you can really try and get the fit right, the shape right. And then once you're happy with that, you're able to maybe then get it physically sampled. So you're already cutting out a huge part of the process. The other amazing thing you can do is actually, that this is what we worked with clients, was there's the process of first getting the collection. Then you have, once you're happy with the collection, you've got to produce it physically to photograph and show to buyers. Because then once the, what the buyers choose is ultimately what actually gets put into mass production. Oh, okay. So again, you've still got this step of so like, this, actually, there's another round. There's another round where you actually out. go through buyers right. and they're actually like, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to, we want to buy this. I want to confirm the colorways. So you could have made a jacket with 10 colorways. All of those had to be produced, but then only the black one is the one that right. makes it through. So what you can do with digital, again, is do as many colorways as you want and actually render out like photorealistic quality images that you can actually show to buyers. So the buyers can even still be in that digital process with you. You can send them fabric samples so they have a sense of the fabric, but still you're working primarily in digital. You haven't had to produce yet maybe many mm -hmm. physical copies of the item and then once the buyers are like okay these are the, the ones that we want that's when you go into physical so by that way you're already delaying that process again and reducing a huge amount of waste so much waste yeah yeah and, and also huge amount of cost and also during the pandemic literally just it was not possible to do that because everything right. was Supply shut chain. down so that was really like what we started to do. but again you still stop before you get to the consumer like the consumer is not seeing any of this they're just seeing they're going to see the physical product and so we were really trying to think about how do we go beyond that and get consumers engaging with digital fashion okay and that was when we launched the fabric and platform to focus on that and so now to answer your question like what can you now for brands mm -hmm. that really want to engage in digital fashion beyond just like this internal process there are more ways that you can actually engage with it because people are picking up okay there are more uses for digital fashion it's becoming more prevalent so ar is a big one we have an ar app there's also several other companies that have their own dedicated ar apps where you can actually go and buy digital fashion or try digital fashion on and ar is a big one and, and do you try it on so that you can then order the physical item or or do you just wear it in digital? Potentially. And, th and this is what's really interesting, though, because the other kind of insight in social media, obviously, is that you have a lot of people buying clothes to wear for photos that mm -hmm. maybe they wear once or twice. It, it also creates this kind of very wasteful behavior. There's companies that literally were doing things like, send us your photo and we'll dress you. <laughs> so it looks like you're wearing it. 
Digital dressing was also a thing. It still is a thing, but not as much. But AR is a form of digital dressing and the technology is still developing. So obviously the body tracking is not as good as face tracking, but it literally, it gets better and better every year. It's it's incredible, like how, like the advances they're making on it. And so I, I think AR eventually will become a substitute for a lot of people. For example, being in the call with you, I can put on my digital outfit. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily need to buy a jacket or buy some cool glasses or whatever it is wear my cool accessories and and that's it and that's fine and And you prevent consumerism right then you stop perpetuating huge consumerism so interesting the other use that i have seen and i'd love to know because i know fabricant does this is you guys have partnered with brands so that you can create digital items that are then worn in immersive spaces. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like where are people wearing this? What is an immersive space? Yeah, definitely. So I think AR is one one thing we produce, but we also produce wearables for different metaverses. So for Decentraland and for Ready Play Me, which actually integrates with places like Spatial and many other kind of immersive experiences. And that's where you basically can take take the item, the 3D item, because that's the other thing that I think brands realized. When you bring something into the 3D world, as as a 3d file there's so much more you can do with it if you've got a physical jacket you've got one physical jacket (laughs) what you can photograph it you can put it on someone and and kind of video it. that's great if you have a jacket in 3d you can duplicate it as many times you can customize it as you like you can also like bring it into different games you can create content with it through simulation and vfx and obviously now with all the web3 stuff there's a lot of stuff you can do just bringing it on chain and kind of selling it as a validated digital asset you can really sell it so i think brands are also just seeing obviously we produce physical but have Having that same asset as a 3D artifact is very valuable. So even just being able to produce fashion 3D, like one day that item could become physical. Who knows really up to what people want to do with it. It sounds like that could be market testing. If you create a digital jacket and you release it into a bunch of different worlds and people and you see it really takes off, then it's like maybe we do create the physical version. Yeah. Exactly. And we, and when we design, we actually design everything and test it in Unreal Engine. So we're designing all this stuff to be supported by game engines. So we're also building for the future where games, and they already are the most dominant form of media that we all consume. It, it will be gaming. We, we design everything so that it is game engine ready. And I think that is something like future proofing your items. And I think that's what a lot of brands realize too, like the Nike drop. I mean, Nike just announcing them partnering with Fortnite. LVMH also announcing them partnering with Epic. Like these are game engines. So like it's yeah. really interesting to see there's massive brands now really embracing this. This is one thing that the fabric founders always say, the gaming... Why has gaming and gaming culture become so important for fashion? The gaming world, it's it's massive. And I think okay. if you don't work in the industry, you don't realize how massive it is, but actually it's huge. I don't work in gaming, but I do actually follow a lot of gaming kind of podcasts and read about it because I just am really fascinated by it. It's huge. Like the amount of people that engage with games and spend money in games and their identities in games, I think this is a really critical thing. It's, it's about your digital identity. And so many games now are more than just a, oh, come and play as this character and get through it's about connecting they're social it's really about finding a part of yourself that you didn't realize you had in your physical world people build real-time social communities in games and they want to express themselves and that's going to just become more and more predominant and you need to dress those people (laughs) they all need fashion they want to go beyond that and if anything they they want to have options exactly they want to have options and i think especially now like it's all about being able to express yourself so how you express yourself digitally is going to be huge but i think that's where digital fashion is the missing piece with that whatever they were in the physical and digital and even go beyond that what else can you do in the digital that you can't do in the physicals and you can be so many different characters so i think people's digital wardrobes will totally eclipse their physical wardrobes in the future just because and so we're building for that and there's going to be thousands and thousands of brands and creators and people designing for games there already is i mean it's already there it's not just coming fortnite what they just released with their creator program is massive it's telling what did they launch they basically launched a platform where it's like you can create your own worlds within fortnite and upload your own assets so it's you could build your own world and they invested a lot of money into it like they invest a lot of their team into it 
it. And I think that's really powerful and telling of where they see it going. It's like they're building an ecosystem out for people to come and build on top of, not just producing their own single narrative and their world. Mm -hmm. And obviously Fortnite is is a huge one and there's many other games like that and there will be more spaces like that as the tech gets better as people can access these on their phone or wherever they are gaming is something we're definitely building for and i think actually anyone working in media should be thinking about i really think gaming will be the dominant media and it it is already but maybe not for everyone Mm -hmm. but really it will be the dominant way we consume pop culture who knows maybe the next five ten years When you think about where gaming is now versus where you can see the potential of gaming going, and by potential, I don't even mean like the technology isn't there, but more like utility and the creativity of people wanting to use gaming as a media, co-creating with gamers and co-creating with creators of games, like what potential? Could you paint a little bit of that hypothesis that you're imagining? I think it will, they'll just become their own like economies, right? I think that will be serviced by thousands of people. People creating content, creating experiences, creating and having earning. their own currency, right? Yeah, like, from these worlds, exactly. You already see that with like Roblox Decentraland and Minecraft and, and, and mm-hmm. Fortnite and many other games. I think there'll be like Upwork in game worlds where you can go and you can. There already is. This is the thing. All this stuff is already happening, but it maybe it's just happening on a more niche level but yeah i just believe they will become like their own little economies and i don't mean the game world might not necessarily feel like a fort like a first person shooter it could be more like a sims kind of social kind of thing as well so i think there will be it's not just going to be these we're all going to be playing (laughs) battlefield or something but it will be just the merging between everyday life into a gaming kind of environment or gaming context like even now if you did that in a metaverse you're in like what you could call a game environment, game engine environment. But it's interesting, like the more that I do events and meetups with people in a spatial or a decentralized, you see like the benefits of it overdoing mm. just a Zoom call or something, right? Mm-hmm. There are benefits. Mm-hmm. You can be in a shared space. You can break off into different things. You can all be looking at, there's like stuff you can do together. And I think that context will also grow. So you also need to have your digital identity that you take with you to these different contexts as well. Whenever uh, I look up metaverse, I feel like everyone has their own definition of metaverse. How are you or how, how is Fabricant defining metaverse? I don't know how the Fabricant define. that's a, <laughs> I won't speak on behalf of the fabric because I'm sure that... Okay, you can just speak for yourself. We we define it differently. I'm not too sure exactly how. There's many ways. But I think the way I would personally define it, it is essentially like a social virtual environment. And so for me, when I think about metaverse, I don't actually necessarily think of high resolution graphics. Like I know that's one type of metaverse that is going to be like fully VR headset enabled. But then I think uh, there's also the experience of metaverse that is like what we already experience on social platforms, essentially like virtual spaces, dedicated virtual spaces where people can come together, gather, be social, do actions together that isn't possible in the physical world. You could argue that... Is this a metaverse, what you and I are doing? I I wouldn't say this is necessarily just because it's just the... Maybe, I'm not sure actually. I think it's more like, like... Technically, we're not in a shared space, right? Or are we? Like, we are. are I would say we are in a shared space. Okay. But I'd say this is still feels like a call. I think the other Mm -hmm. element is that there is an interface on it that has mm-hmm. some kind of element of spatiality maybe is it a spatial environment yeah or like even like a, yeah like in. exactly a sense of it has its own time when you think of a feed right you share your twitter feed with all these other people there's a sense of time there's a sense of like mm-hmm. all that type of thing and i think there are lo-fi metaverses too like you, you find metaverses on your mobile phone that are more like pixelated but that's still a lo-fi experience there's still a sense of like space there's still a sense of its own time in that world. Like it, it has its own, it governs, it has its own like rules, like in the sense of like physics or gravity or whatever you would call that in a virtual space. And so I think there's like a spectrum of these lo-fi, very lo-fi metaverses to like these very high resolution metaverses. And obviously each one has different tech requirements and each one is good for different things. So the things like the events that we would plan in spatial are different to the events we would plan in decentralized and very different to the events we might plan in say a Roblox. And I think each metaverse caters to a different type of experience. There are many metaverses, there'll be even more, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's just ultimately like a virtual shared space with its own governing physics and laws. I I feel like this is making me think about the role of fashion and culture and community. Like we know fashion can't really exist without culture and then culture can't really exist without community and when 
fashion and community is digital. Like, how do you cultivate community? How do you cultivate connection? But then culture isn't something that you're cultivating. It's really driven by the people. So I guess I'm curious how you think about all of those for your role or or from your world. Yeah, Yeah. I think it's interesting. Like, I actually do think, I actually think that individuals are the culture starters. They start the culture and then it gets perpetuated into a mass culture. So I actually think, for example, like Paris Fashion Week happened a couple of weeks ago. There were some incredible shows. Those were all cultural moments. They were initiated by a brand that was also leveraging, obviously, a lot of cultural, other cultures and other ideas. But pushing that forward into the world creates a cultural moment that people pick up on and will replicate and it gets spread like obviously you need the community to like otherwise it's just a moment in time if no one kind of responds to it what is it but I really think there's there was a great talk I saw recently with but it was these two kind of artists talking about the need to create images or visuals that were visionary and they were actually talking about it in the context of Mars (laughs) ironically they were talking about how Mars is like our next big they were talking about how culture had felt like it was stagnating in the sense like all the kind of images of the future that we're living now were created in like the 90s and 80s and we haven't really moved beyond that there hasn't really been a really powerful narrative that's moved us beyond that and how important it is to for people especially artists and creators and, and also cultural entities like musicians all these people and communities to really put out visionary images and visuals to really inspire, to get out of this like stagnating consumerism. And so I think that's actually something that The Fabricant did really well, which is why we have such a great reputation and people know our visuals is that we were able to put out really powerful visuals to showcase what digital fashion is. Otherwise, yeah, people don't get it. Arguably, I totally understand why. But when you can show someone an image of the world, what the future could look like with fashion, with whatever, which whatever stories you're trying to tell, it's really powerful. And, and that's, that is what creates culture, these really powerful visuals. And I think a lot of communities are connected to an aesthetic. That's where fashion becomes a part of it, whether it's the symbolism, the music they all love, they all have, like, they have, a lot of communities will have a visual language that they use to identify themselves and express themselves and a way to connect. There's something that, there is a visual language to communities for sure they have this like cultural like they have this very aesthetic kind of language that crosses your app music visual all that type of thing but it really brings them together fashion labels that's what they do right they create these really incredible stories and visuals like so powerful like the visuals that the fashion industry creates like they are master storytellers and i think that's what that's why they're able to get people to (laughs) buy clothing right like go beyond this like functional need to do something and want to be a part of something it is really powerful and so doing it for digital fashion is definitely more challenging because you lose that tangibility of being able to wear it and have a picture of yourself but that's where I think people are adapting people are starting to with PFPs with AR filters and also now with being able to wear things in the metaverse or just being able to show that you own something these are all ways to signify okay I'm part of this movement I'm part of this community so, yeah. so can you tell us a little bit about like the Fabricant platform because I know that's a place where you're really engaging with everyone and and there's a lot of power of co-creation happening there could you tell us a little bit about that yeah definitely so the platform is really so it's built on flow blockchain the infrastructure is on blockchain and basically it's a platform where we want to appeal to to a create their own digital fashion pieces so not just buy but also create to trade so there's a marketplace and then have ways to wear it so whether that with AR or through wearables and things like that the creation part what's really interesting that we offer that I think is really unique to us is actual co-creation so you literally can come and choose from a palette of garments colors materials all designed by different people so it doesn't always have to be a collection designed by one label or one artist you can have materials by different artists you can have garments by different artists and you come and you actually put the combinations together to create your unique collection and i think that's something really only possible in digital from obviously a scale production point of view you really can't do that physically or you can but very low scale that's really powerful but 
but then also it's like really creating this new type of consumer behavior where you're not just like buying what someone has designed you're part you of the design it. process mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's something that actually consumers want but it's just obviously very hard to facilitate that and deliver on that promise but now with digital and when you have like a completely digital kind of chain of mm-hmm. production it's totally possible to do that and and that's something i think that the fabricant is offering we're also obviously doing like we do we've done several drops now where we're connecting to a, a physical product so we've done like a digital twin of a physical product which is also something i think people will want more of so i'm buying this sunglasses like we just did a drop with weekday they created the physical we created the digital so if you bought both of them you could wear the physical but then you can also wear the digital in ar mm-hmm. so there is like this like growing desire for oh but i also want the digital one to go with that so i can wear it in photos and things like that and share it plus the digital one can have different effects that the physical Mm -hmm. one might not be able to have so you get the best of both worlds you can also trade Mm -hmm. there's a marketplace as well so you can trade your items so you can become like the goal is eventually you have people that are maybe not designed as traditional fashion designers but they can come they can create a collection they can sell it too can i come on fabricant and make something yeah you can actually you can even now you can do that we have a collection the capers which are three hats that you can actually customize the colors and the materials with this amazing glitch artist based in the u.s called ellie pritt and all the materials animated and they're all her original art so you're also it's like this new kind of way that artists can have their work collected and interacted with through fashion interesting so yeah it's just i think what's really interesting about what we do is it's just like opening up all these different ways people can interact with fashion and what is a fashion product what can a fashion product be what was the decision or why is it important for fabricants platform to be on chain like why is it on blockchain so i think that the most important thing is it's the authentication of a digital asset so obviously okay. it's very hard to verify hey it's a digital file essentially you've got a visual you've got an image you've got JPEG, <laughs> as we like to call it. It's a JPEG, right? That's mm-hmm. very easy to duplicate. It's very easy mm-hmm. to create copies. There's no way to validate that it's authentic to, as a, just a normal consumer. So bringing it on chain adds that level of authentication. And so it can hold its value and it protects it against all the scams and things like that. And obviously that still happens, but you have this extra layer of protection. And I think that's why so many fashion brands are also just looking at, even if they're remaining physical, to still find ways to authenticate that physical Mm -hmm. item on chain so that it is validated. So it can be like resold, that it can be validated because it also protects their product and their IP for themselves and for the owner. So that's a really critical part of it. It right now is the only way to truly validate the authenticity of an item. Obviously like building on chain presents a lot of challenges, especially in terms of like how people pay for it. There's a huge onboarding challenge that all projects, everyone operating this space has, is how how do we bring people beyond that first wave of crypto native people that are willing to go deep and learn how to set up wallets and understand different currencies and how to do that stuff? Most people don't want to do that. Most people have zero desire to do that. So it's also the narrative that's been created around it, right? Like the narrative plus like the the jargon, it's, it just automatically feels like it's inaccessible and it's not for everyone. I'd say it's the narrative, but it's literally also the user experience. Like yes, it's literally yes, inaccessible definitely. for a lot of people. Yeah. We already, we do drops and we already see like the restrictions in different, especially now more restrictions depending on your country, like paying with a credit card, you really take for granted how easy that is that you can with with shopify or whatever anyone in the world can buy your product that is not possible in the current space we're in with even using the best on-ramp tech that we have there's still a lot of limitations so that's like a huge issue the validation of a digital asset is is hugely important so obviously the tech will get better and once it gets better more people will come on yeah that's that that i would say is one of the setbacks of using technology and also just like the way that the web tech runs, like the way that credit card transactions can literally get processed like that. That is not how the blockchain runs. <laughs> yeah. Like it's slow. It has issues. It has downtime. There's and literally times fees, when you do a drop yeah. and because the chain is down or because whatever gas prices, people won't buy a product, you know, and that would be, that's crazy. If you like are a retailer, that that's like a huge no, no. Yeah. Oh, you're saying that there's times when people literally who want to pay are not going to be able to pay. That is a huge red flag. So I think there's 
And if you have multiple people trying to make that same purchase, it might actually drive the gas fee up. Exactly. Yeah. Which becomes counterproductive because that's not the behavior that you would want to prevent in real life. No, exactly. Right. Like you're just like the behavior in real life is if you want to buy something, it's available for you right then and there it's and you work. want like a big launch you want all the foot traffic yeah, you, want all, and you want all the people to come in exactly right. that's not the same no exactly mm-hmm. and all the crazy strategies that projects have to get around this is it's really complicated and the way that you know have to design a drop to avoid this like we're not on eth so we actually luckily don't have gas fees on flow which is really incredible we have done like we were running a promo we were asking people to mint a piece of art on eth and I remember at the time it was like the gas fees were really high. And literally we were like, okay, hold off doing it because it's, it's you're almost yeah. asking people to spend money just to participate. And, and that's just right. not acceptable for a large scale audience. So yeah, there's definitely setbacks to it. We're investing now because we really believe in the future of it and that all the stuff around it is going to get better. So there's a bunch of other questions I really want to get into. <laughs> we talked about when I asked you about the vision you had for how the metaverse might manifest and how we'll interact with it. What are some of your fears around this, the intersection of all these emerging technologies and our relationship with it? I think like with, with digital fashion, to be honest, like I think it's not so much, a f- yeah, I don't know if it's like I have that many fears about it because I really see how it outweighs the negatives. But I think there is also the danger that just as we've created like extreme amounts of physical waste in the fashion industry, we'll contribute to extreme amounts of digital waste because all this stuff still consumes a lot of energy. It's not like we're just suddenly carbon. Digital space isn't like it does still have a carbon footprint. It does still have. Everything's hosted on Mm -hmm. servers. Mm -hmm. Everything is on chain. Like everything, it's it's still running. All this stuff is active and running. So we still have a carbon footprint. And I think like it's easy to maybe, I guess, to create this new world of digital waste. I think that's something to be mindful of. Although I I do still think it's very, we're we're really far away from that. But I, I think like the narrative so far as well about people pushing for blockchains to become more energy efficient is already pushing us in the right direction. So I don't, it's not like a huge fear I have. Yeah, with digital fashion, to be honest, like not a huge, like I actually see, or maybe I'm so brainwashed <laughs> that I don't see it. But really, I think it's just amazing because it's going to mean so mm. many more people can come into the fashion space and create fashion and do shows and that becomes Creates access mm-hmm. yes yeah, mm-hmm. the access is incredible like you yeah. know what it allows and also what you can do i'm like excited to see what fashion will become even when more people can create it yeah i, I think like ai is one that i don't want to get into because that's like a bit of a rabbit hole <laughs> but i think that is one whole another you know, episode yeah exactly where there's more fears obviously are there certain like ethical considerations that you think people who are in the space of digital fashion or metaverse building have to keep in mind? I think it's just like right now where it's at, it's still very, you need to be quite technically savvy, right? The people that are engaging mm-hmm. with this are really people that understand 3D and gaming mm-hmm. and, and tech, right? A blender, right? And a lot of, that's also still a very small audience. A person that's really into fashion might feel intimidated and off-put by that and so might not engage with it. And so maybe there is that barrier, but there are more and more software and tools to make that more seamless. So I think as that gets better, that would be good. In terms of the Web3 though, or just in terms of blockchain technology in general, I think, yeah, again, I think the thing that is the most that will be quite challenging, yeah, like the decentralization, how will that play out? What will that mean? And not so much a fear. It's also kind of something that's interesting. What will a fashion label look like and operate? If it's decentralized. If it's, but also if it's like really through co-creation, like what does mm-hmm. that mean for the IP of a... Right. You and know, how what do you does give it mean? credit? How do you give compensation? Yeah. How do you yeah. do all of that? And, and what does yeah. it even mean to operate as a label? Will it dilute the power that labels? Because I think that's one thing too, right? Like labels very centralized, but mm-hmm. they also through that are able to create these really beautiful beautiful, coordinated, powerful visuals. If you lose that, do you also dilute this vision that maybe a small, Mm. I don't know, so I think there's a balance. Yeah. Do Um, do you think we'll see a rise of a brand core and then the co-created line of that brand? Yeah, definitely. I think that's one way it will happen first. So the brand will still maintain like a certain level of creativity and IP. Mm -hmm. And then there's like customizations that people can take on and extend. That's what we see now with a lot of Web3 projects where it's like people are able to leverage the IP of the original collection, but then they can create like derivatives. So that's like 
like the one, I think that's like definitely a valid use case. I think what'll become more interesting and people are definitely experimenting this is like when it becomes like a more unstructured creative process, which can be facilitated now through all these different ways we connect and, and operate. Yeah. What will that look like? How will it change the industry? How will it change what designer, what does it even mean to be a designer? So I think there is, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a fear. It's more just like a unknown. Like you wonder. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like what is that unknown, unknown? I feel like one thing I that just sparked for me as you were talking is once you provide enough tools and creative mechanisms to customize, will people be able to put hate messages on a brand's item? And someone can put a hate message on their shirt right now and walk around the street, right? My mind starts wondering, maybe it's already happening in niche spaces and I'm just not aware of it, where someone could be like, oh, this is an amazing tool. I am now going to every day wear racist slurs on my outfit virtually and people can't really find me. I don't know. That's something that sparked for me when I think about the potential misuses here, right? Yeah. No, I think, look, that's definitely a valid use case, but I'd say that's people do that now already. Yeah, like, exactly. You can already you go to the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look, Kanye put White Lives mm-hmm. Matter at a premier yeah. fashion event, but that was, that's already a thing. And I also think hate speech, what defines hate speech? changes but really it really depends on what is the dominant culture and it's really hard to predict and police it and I think like attempts to do well justified definitely right there's definitely you need to have places like things like that in place I don't think you can necessarily stop it totally and I also don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because I think it's like when those opinions get voiced and you realize they exist Mm. then people can come and and find ways to deal with that opinion the more that it is hidden and bubbling and kind of turning into something really horrible I I think that's when it gets really dangerous when it's maybe Mm. there is a way for it to be out in the open it can be addressed right like it can be like okay there is a whole group of people that believe this which Mm -hmm. you might think is crazy why do they believe that how do we like it it becomes something you can address I hadn't thought about it that way which is definitely interesting in some ways when racism is hidden or like when sexism is hidden you almost feel like oh I guess sexism just doesn't exist anymore yeah there is no patriarchy but then when it's out and you see the signs of it in out in the open you're right then we can talk about it and talk about so how do we like address this how do we as a society what are we normalizing here and what do we not want to normalize that's I have to say I hadn't thought about it that way okay all right yeah I think it's you have to do it's all stuff you have to deal with collectively I think it's really hard to and like as much as you can look at obviously there's examples that are terrible but I like to always think people came to those conclusions somehow generally people aren't born hateful evil right like they've somehow gotten to this point through whatever events in their life that influences and I think it's it's always a conversation it's always the best way to do it because otherwise it is yeah it becomes dangerous it becomes you know, insular you know what's mm-hmm. out there so yeah and I do hope actually with digital fashion that it does allow more people to express themselves like fundamentally that's what we want that people are out there expressing their most authentic self and yeah that could cause a lot of controversy like we already see that right like we released this our latest collection we dropped this visual of this woman and she's like 3d character obviously but she's obviously a a large woman so not the normal slim body type she's a large woman and she's like twerking with this beaded outfit on and it was posted on the next museum instagram which is where it was being shown it was really interesting to the feed to see the comments equally as positive as just negative like Mm. people were just like why would you create this is so horrible it's ugly it's disgusting and that was just like a someone who was like a larger a large woman dancing and but people saw that as really disgusting and I think like putting those putting images like that out there in the world a it challenges people obviously but actually we were glad that it's for us it's like putting images like out there that are challenging is actually good it's good to get a response it's good to actually show people something that maybe maybe for some it will make them hate us (laughs) but for some it might make them see the world in a different way and expand Mm -hmm. their sense of hey okay this is a form of beauty this is a form of a different form that kind of pushes that a little bit so I I think that's something that we've it's hard to get that expression out there but with digital technology you can do so much more Mm -hmm. as it becomes more accessible we hope to see more images that are going to challenge us 
images and visuals and stories that are really going to challenge us, but hopefully it's going to make us more empathetic and more seeing, more open-minded to like, okay, these are all the different ways people can exist and express themselves. Like we already right. see that with the trend, like it's pride month. It's already, that's mm-hmm. such a huge, like where we are today. <laughs> can you imagine 20 years ago, how, how different the narrative was? And that's come through yeah. a lot of hard work and vulnerability and people like putting and advocacy. It's interesting. Like I hadn't thought about it that way at all. And I think to your point, I loved your example of seeing both positive and negative responses to that video and seeing that they were pretty equal. And what that shows is to your point, by leveraging digital technology, you were able to put that opinion out there. You're able to put make a stance that you believe that this is an image of that's beautiful, that deserves to take up space. And it's an expression of creativity and beauty by the brand taking that stance. It's saying, no, we're good with this. No, this is what we think should be here. And, and I think what we're seeing more and more of is it's not like certain images or certain representation is only normalized on a certain month. We're seeing more and more brands and more and more just people put themselves out there, period, in their most mm-hmm. authentic self. And I do think it's beautiful. It does make it a little bit more open into getting hate messages or like opposing views in general. And I get what you're saying, like by someone saying, oh, this is ugly. They're getting like, no, this is beautiful. They're getting challenged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're challenging their kind of view on the world, which of course people don't like to be challenged. (laughs) Right. It's not an easy thing to be done. I I think we've all been challenged. We get challenged all the time. And and often like we see things that we're like, oh my God, that's crazy. But then you might on the flip side be like, oh, I just, yeah, I didn't think about it that way or like hearing. I mean, I just, I literally just said that, right? Like even I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. How how does your parents describe what you do or how would they describe what you do? You know what? I don't even know. I think I, maybe they think I work in digital something. Honestly, I don't even go there. <laughs> I think they think I work in marketing. Marketing is the okay. easiest one to explain. But not even my parents. Like I, a lot of my friends don't understand what I do. When I think when I first started working, A, when I worked in digital fashion, there was first a what is that okay we get it you make 3d clothing okay maybe get that then when moving into oh we're working web 3 and people can co-create and do stuff that was that's like a complete and to a lot of people that still Mm -hmm. is a complete like black box of i just don't understand that sometimes i'm good at explaining and other days i'm not (laughs) depending on how i'm feeling but i think the meta and the the narrative with the metaverse maybe helped Mm -hmm. a little bit but also didn't help I think a lot of people just have a hard time seeing how the, the digital world is as present to me and many people as the physical. But I think it's, a lot of people It's no don't. longer like a digital isn't the plan B. No, exactly. I don't think, mm-hmm. I, I really don't see like a separate thing. It's we're constantly moving between digital and physical. Yeah, I actually think that boundary will just continue to blur. Like the world we inhabit is both digital and physical all the time you constantly have your phone with you you're constantly connecting into digital spaces like actually you're more connected digitally (laughs) you're just as connected digitally as you are physically but a lot of people I think really picture this like 3d virtual environment when actually it's just the internet and it's just how we connect so I think when you get into like digital fashion and gaming it all seems like the future and Mm -hmm. unreal and things like that but um, it's now Mm -hmm. yeah exactly but it is actually It's present. It's very present. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you one last question before we do a rapid round of questions. I know you're, you recently transitioned from being the head of community to being the head of marketing and growth. How are you approaching that? And what's the difference to you? Yeah. So I think the community, being head of community is very much focused on how do we grow and keep this community engaged, keep giving them programs and activities and products and whatever it is to keep them growing, keep them engaged so they can become the people that are bringing other people in. So it's really a focus on retention, but also events, engagement, things like that. I think transitioning now to more of a marketing and growth role, which is still community is definitely still a key part of it. It's really now about, yeah, like the storytelling and how do we like connect, resonate with new people? How do we like connect with them? What is it? What is our story? How do we present ourselves? So it is going to be, it's going to be interesting. It's going to take me back to my days back in the ad world for sure. So when you say storytelling, you're you're talking about uh, the storytelling of the brand, the fabricant too, right? And and then the community storytelling versus the brand. It's, I'm curious, like, how are you parsing those? Or or maybe there is no parsing and it's, that's what makes it more complicated. It's like, it's, it's not even, it's like the storytelling that you need for someone who doesn't know Mm -hmm. who you are. And then what's the storytelling for someone that 
knows who you Doesn't are. Like, mm-hmm. how do you interact with them? So I think it's, it's a different type of storytelling that will be happen for this more of a marketing acquisition type role. But also I'm really excited about doing it. So obviously I started when it was like banner, people were buying banner ads and emails and doing paid stuff. And now we're in a world where it's like portrait only, people are only in TikTok and YouTube. Shows. Like where people spend their time online is so different now. Yeah. And with OpenAI as well and ChatGPT, it's people are in these tools rather than just surfing the internet. People are spending more time in tools where they just get what they need and they get out. They're spending mm-hmm. less time on these like public or whatever ad kind of backed networks. So it's like, how do we connect with people? So that will definitely be a challenge. But I'm excited to see what that world is like. So I haven't, yeah. It's so much more interactive. Yeah, exactly. And so much more about, I think there is a really strong community angle to it too. Because you have Um, to want to connect. You have to feel connected to the story to want to interact with it versus old age digital marketing was just one directional and it was just like consume this message or consume this thing. I don't really need you to interact with it per se versus now it's that compelled to action that makes it a little bit more complicated. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I'm actually excited about my, direct marketing conversion reports and all the stuff we yeah. do is yeah getting back into the numbers actually mm-hmm. I, I actually I'm excited about that I am a little bit averse to the numbers and KPIs and things but something about it this time is, you know what I'm actually interested to see like how do people respond how do you look at these different metrics and, and things like that so yeah amazing excited for you okay so I'm gonna kick off our rapid fire okay are you an introvert or extrovert extrovert what helps you stay curious the internet <laughs> What's one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? Definitely my family, stability, like just having that very important. If you could go back and give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Honestly, believe in yourself. Mm. I think that's one thing. Just I realized I would just want to do things. I was like, it's too hard. I'm not going to do it. I I think there were so many things if I had done it, I would have just nailed it. So just, Mm. yeah. I relate to that hard. What is something you've been doing recently to nurture your mental health? (laughs) Asking from one new mom to another new mom. (laughs) I try to meditate. (laughs) It sometimes works. (laughs) I used to be good at that stuff, but honestly, yeah, that's, I don't know. Good question. I guess meditate. Yeah. What's something you couldn't do without in your career? It could be anything, a a routine, a person, Uh, a service. Definitely now, like just the remote work culture. I, I, I don't know how people, especially being a parent, had to show up to an office every day <laughs> at nine. That's, that was, that's crazy. It's really I know. Hard. Out of all the failures you've had in your life, whether it was a failure of never launching, uh, a launch that didn't go so well, or something that didn't go great, what's your favorite failure? Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. the moments when I actually didn't act on the things I wanted to do. I think I would actually call those true failures because not giving it a go basically was the failure. If I just given it a go and failed, right. it probably like it. So yeah. I think it was actually just the not. Like what if you believed in yourself? The fear, Mm -hmm. yeah, the fears, yeah. How do you nurture or what encourages play in your life right now? My child, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) If you weren't in this role, what else would you be doing? I'd love to be a writer. That would be my dream and I'm working on that. Hopefully I can age into that (laughs) one day. So yeah, that would just definitely be my dream. Amazing. What do you think is up next for Metaverse, for digital fashion? I think the focus, I'm excited about what Apple Vision Pro has just the excitement it's created. Mm -hmm. I think that will help bolster that it helped bolster us all right now that are facing all the negative stories. So I think right now that that is something that's keeping people staying positive about immersive technology. But honestly, I think we really need to wait for the narrative to change a little bit. It's definitely tough right now in the Web3 and just metaverse space. And also in the world, like economically, like it's tough right now. So I think, and so I'd say, I think that Apple Vision Pro has actually helped bring up, bring the excitement back to what immersive tech can be. So that that I'd say is the next kind of exciting thing. Who do you think is up next? Who's someone that the listeners, I should be watching and learning from? 
I, I would say there's all these like up and coming creators, TikTok, get on TikTok, all the entertainers on there, I'd say are all the people that are up next. In closing, where can people learn more about you, support your work? I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, Jamala okay. Shome, so that's all, that's easy. And then I'm also, I have a sub stack that I'm trying to get up and running. Yeah, OK we'll Collective it. stands for Open Knowledge Collective. So that's something I'm, I'm working on. So you can also, I'm going to hope to be adding more there Amazing. Well soon. So yeah. We're excited to see your writing come into that mm-hmm. substack. Nirmala, thank you so much for making the time for this call. I've learned so much and I'm so inspired by your whole story, by everything that you've shared today, your point of view. And I feel like you've opened up some of my aperture a little bit more towards where immersive fashion and immersive expression is going. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Reva. This was really fun. You should do this it was really fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a part two. Yeah, part two. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this conversation today. If you liked what you heard, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help more people discover the show. Really appreciate you joining us today. And be sure to hit subscribe, leave a comment and come back next week so we can keep exploring what's up next in tech and shape our collective future together. Until then, stay curious.